Mini episode 1119 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini-episode number 1119. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here with one of my favorite FDH Lounge dignitaries. He comes in to talk about a number of subjects, but uh, basketball is always among them. We've got our 2019 NBA Finals preview. My good friend Ben Chu, longtime basketball correspondent here with the show, and uh, we're going to be breaking down uh, what is a... A finals uh, matchup that is a little bit different than the last couple of years. Golden State is still there. It is Toronto on the other side, and Toronto actually has home court. So does that matter at all? What are the different factors in this series we need to be talking about? All that and much, much more with my good friend, Ben Chu. Ben, welcome back on, my friend. Hi, thanks, Rick. It's great to be back on again. Great to have you here, as per always, my man. Uh, I want to start the same way that I started the 2019 Stanley Cup Final Preview, which is just to go through our ultimate quantitative baseline comparison between these two teams, looking at regular season numbers. We had put up on the main page at fantasydrafthelp.com a link to a breakdown going into the playoffs. It was all the teams in the league. So actually I'm isolating this to Golden State and Toronto as to how they came out in a number of different statistical categories coming into the finals here. Golden State ranked first. In our breakdown among all the teams, Toronto ranked third. That's actually also where they came out in our final power rankings, first and third. On both of those, Milwaukee was second. So in terms of looking at this, getting into it a little bit further, there's a breakdown we did that is half schedule in terms of power rankings and uh, competitiveness and uh, impressiveness against the schedule you played. For Golden State, who's in a little bit of a weaker division, they placed fifth on this. Toronto placed third in the league. For offensive rating, Golden State was first, Toronto was fifth. Defensive rating, Golden State was 11th, a little shakier than they've been in some past seasons. Toronto was fifth in EFG, Golden State first, Toronto third. TS percentage, Golden State first, Toronto fourth. Assist to turnover ratio, Golden State first, Toronto 13th. Well, I'm sure we'll be talking about that a little bit here and whether that might matter. Three-point percentage. Uh, Golden State, uh, you always think that they're first in the league, but a lot of times they aren't. This time they're third, and Toronto is sixth. And then we have a modified win shares formula that we did here because to be first in, in all of these categories, as Golden State was, you have to have the lowest number. They placed out 14th total, and uh, Toronto's number was 26th. So the win shares is actually a negative number, and this is just an eyeball kind of thing on my part. If you subtract it off the best player on each team, I just kind of eyeballed it, that in Golden State's place, that would be a subtraction of 10 wins. In Toronto's place, that would be a subtraction of 16 wins. So as I said, the total formulation, Golden State coming out with 14 points in all of these categories here, which is really impressive, obviously. Toronto at 26th third overall. As you look at all of these ones here, Ben, whether it be Toronto being relatively mediocre in assist-to-turnover ratio, 
Golden State a little softer than we've generally expected in terms of defensive rating. Aside from that, they are all top six in every other category that we went through and top five in most cases. So is there anything in particular that jumps out at you? I mean, nothing really off the top, right? It's been a very uh, interesting NBA season, to say the least. And just overall, with the Raptors uh, and Warriors matchup during the regular season, the two seem very evenly matched. Toronto took a 2-0 lead overall with both of those games. Durant did not play one of them for Golden State, but nothing at, at this point jumps out based off of any of the analytics or any of the data at this I don't blame you, yeah, because the way it comes down, you look at it like, Memo, this just in. These two teams are very good. And then, again, there's not a lot to separate them, like I said, aside from a couple of the ones here. Uh, The note that I wanted to get to, uh, I'm always looking for any type of uh, connection between the cities sports-wise in any of the major sports. And in this case, it comes in, and I'd only learned this in the last year or so, that uh, it comes in in baseball, and this is something that most people don't know, and that the Toronto Blue Jays are largely in existence because of the San Francisco Giants. Because uh, in 1976, I believe this was January of 76, when sports were much more ad hoc at the time, and you could still talk about moving your team for the season in January, Horace Stoneham tried to sell the San Francisco Giants to Labatt's, with the thought being they would play at Exhibition Stadium in 76, and that uh, Toronto would henceforth be their new home. That fell through, but in the course of that, it got arranged for the Blue Jays to come into being as an expansion team in 77, and oh, by the way, the Seattle Mariners as well. So is that anything that you had ever heard, Ben? Because I believe uh, that that's a, that's a pretty obscure piece of sports knowledge out there uh, on the landscape. I was pretty shocked to have found out about it. Yeah, it, it, I, I'm pretty sure it's not a commonly known piece of fact. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's an interesting thing. But I, I'm guessing any gratitude that the people of Toronto have for San Francisco's role in the Blue Jays coming into being will, at a bare minimum, be suspended for the next two weeks and quite possibly longer than that uh, if Golden State ends up winning this series, as uh, pretty much everyone seems to think that they are going to. So in looking at this, and one more oddity, this is the thing I wanted to bring up here too, this can't possibly mean anything although maybe you'll think of a reason that it does mean something, but we are now on a streak here uh, of first-year coaches in the NBA Finals. You go back to 2015 with Steve Kerr and David Blatt, 2016, Ty Lue, who actually took over at midseason, 2019, of course, Nick Nurse for Toronto. He took over for Dwayne Casey at the end of last season. The only times that we haven't seen first-year coaches in the Finals since 2015 have been when the same coach has come back i.e. Steve Kerr in all the years since in the West, Ty Lue in all the years since in the East up to this year with Nick Nurse. And it seems very, very odd as a Cavs fan, a lifelong Cavs fan, to feel that, uh, and this is true though, up until Saturday night my Cavs were still the defending Eastern Conference champions. I assure you they didn't feel like it for most of this season. But uh, once again, we get a coach here in the finals. It wouldn't have been a case if it was Mike Budenholzer in Milwaukee, although he would have been a first-year coach in Milwaukee. So in a sense the streak would have been intact. Now, this is something that, on the surface of it, it can't possibly mean anything positive, right? This is just a confluence of factors coming into place, I would think, where in every situation it just turns out to be a first-time head coach there at the helm. Right, and it's a very weird timeline, especially in Eastern Conference, especially for how consistent the Cavs were for that period of time. And you can even throw in, you know, Philadelphia early in the 2000s and the late 90s, New York. It's a very interesting time, but also I think 
that's why we put a premium of uh, on head coaching in the NBA. And sometimes you just need to be in the best situation. That just does happen. I think so. And it just has worked out for these coaches every time coming in there, getting into a good situation. And then, again, credit to them, making the most of it. And uh, in Toronto, of course, the big differential from last year, I'd say bigger than the head coaching change still because, again, Dwayne Casey is coming off of a coach of the year season, which, again, famously in the NBA, that is, of course, a regular season award. Uh, and it didn't mean anything uh, once they got eliminated by the Cavs in swift fashion in the playoffs. So Nick Nurse may or may not be uh, that big of a step up, but uh, if he is that big of a step up, it's a credit to him because, again, Dwayne Casey certainly no slouch uh, at all. The much bigger difference was the upgrade of the best player from a year ago. It's Kawhi Leonard instead of DeMar DeRozan in that slot. That deal was made with San Antonio in the offseason. Risks taken by Toronto in terms of his health. He barely played the year before. And uh, in terms of his expiring contract, will he be around after this season? So a very risky deal for Toronto, but uh, they had the stones to make it happen. It has now paid off for them. And uh, again, it's, it's a team, having said that though, in a lot of ways, this is a dynamic a lot like what Golden State has stared down the last four years, where it is a team that is relatively top-heavy. Kawhi Leonard is disproportionately important to Toronto's success, far more so than any of Golden State's best players individually, although again, that has to do somewhat with, Toronto, or with Golden State being an anomaly team in that regard. Uh, but, it, but again, the, the, the second best player you're looking at, uh, I, I guess, probably Siakam, maybe Kyle Lowry at this point. So it's certainly a steep fall-off from Kawhi. So the whole thing of Golden State being so disproportionately focused on one player as they were at least the last two years. In 2016, obviously, the Cavs were much more balanced. The last two years, not so much. And on the surface, it sort of looks like a little bit of the same dynamic in facing Toronto with Kawhi. Right, and I, I think the feature thing, too, is, is that Golden State for the past five or six years has always had incredible talent, and the league has had to catch up to them at that in that retrospect. But the major thing right now is with Toronto just overall with uh, Kawhi and the ability that they do have a defense. They have a lot of very good players. So there, it's going to be a very interesting series just because there is something on their roster in comparison to, let's say, last year's Cavaliers roster, which was good, but it, but it was woefully short of talent finals. Well, it didn't have enough, uh, nearly enough to face Golden State, as was yeah. proved to be the case in the end there. And uh, again, you look at the regular season that Milwaukee had and the dominance that they showed in blowing through the Eastern Conference, the great strides taken by the Greek Freak this year. And so I, I almost think before we get into anything with Golden State and Toronto, we first have to get into the question of whether this is a better matchup for Golden State than they would have gotten in Milwaukee. Because again, head-to-head, -head, and you see what happened, Toronto figured out a way to shut down Milwaukee the last four games. So you could look at that and say, okay, if Toronto figured it out, Golden State probably would have figured it out and would have even had better personnel to deploy in that way. But uh, again, it doesn't always settle the question between two teams, which of them would match up better with Golden State. So. Is this a matchup, do you think, uh, Ben, that is better or worse for Golden State than it would have been had Milwaukee gotten through and carried that steam of momentum all the way to the finals? I mean, at that point, I think if you're going, uh, I think you would argue that Milwaukee would be better, but as you could probably get to at this time, the way that they ended that series, Toronto didn't really give you a lot of confidence in the Bucks if they were 
it almost felt like they were the hot playoff team that was playing well, had a blip against Boston in game one, but then ultimately kind of teetered out at the end of the, of the thing. But I still think Toronto has more depth than Milwaukee at this time, more players that can help in terms of scoring at all, and arguably some better defensive players than Milwaukee currently have on their roster. Yeah, that is definitely true. And uh, so it's a thing where you look at it, and again, Milwaukee... In going through the playoffs, they really, really separated themselves from uh, Boston. They didn't play Philadelphia, but I think it was very clear that they were uh, a big cut above Philadelphia as well uh, in the end there, just because they seemed to be a big cut above everybody not named Toronto. Those two were thought to be neck and neck, but it was thought to be 1 and 1A, with Toronto being the 1A. So the way that it played out, are you getting the sense that uh, Milwaukee had chinks in the armor that other teams just weren't capable of exposing, but that Toronto was able to expose in the last four games of the East Finals? I think I, I think overall, team defensively, that Toronto was able to do a little bit of shutdown towards Giannis there. And the issue is, you can notice this if you watch the tapes in Game 5 and Game 6, Giannis is pretty much incredibly difficult to stop, but his offensive game in the post really lacking at times, so it was very easy for Toronto to double him or put Kawhi on him or shadow him with guys like Gasol or throwing guys like Danny Green at him for, for a spurt of minutes. But it still feels to me that the reason why Milwaukee kind of lost that series is that pieces around side of Giannis were not that effective in those Game 5 and Game 6. Remember, both of these games were relatively close, so it wasn't an absolute blowout that Toronto won the series. Right. But, but if you have to look just at the raw data, look at numbers, and you can tell Milwaukee had a huge drop-off in those two games offensively. I mean, if we go back to Game 5 specifically, because that that I jumped out at me was that Toronto, I believe, shot 37% from the field overall, the lowest field goal percentage for a playoff winner in a game since, I think, the year was 1960. So Milwaukee, instead of getting stronger late in that series, they kind of ran out of that's a very good point. Like you said, they weren't able to take advantage of uh, what was ailing Toronto at the same point in time. And you look at this, and you look at Toronto coming into this series, and it's a thing where people are talking about, oh, Fred Van Vliet, oh, if he can just keep it up. And I'm sitting here thinking, uh, again, this is me as a Cavs fan, having a lot of bad memories of stuff. But 10 years ago, Michael Petrus, uh, who had a career series in the Eastern Conference Finals, and uh, suffice it to say, that didn't carry over against the Lakers. So I'm looking at this. I'm also having flashbacks to last year and some of my rationalizations with you. Like, oh, well, yeah, if this can be one of George Hill's, if he can have a couple big games, or optimal Jeff Green. I know that was always a punchline between us. If we just get optimal Jeff Green for a couple games. So, I mean, the notion that Fred Van Vliet's staying hot and, and hitting these shots here uh, at, at a pace above where he's generally at, that sort of tells you what you're up against, I think, if you're Toronto. Right, and I think at times, too, especially Milwaukee, Milwaukee for most of the season was able to spread Giannis out a little bit more, then find ways to get him the ball, get him to his spots. And I think especially in the playoffs, when you face a team multiple times, it's a lot easier game planning than if you're just facing them one night out of the season. Absolutely, and when it comes down to them, in terms of that, uh, the last note that I have about Milwaukee is that Giannis when the floor would be spread for him. I mean, that's when things would be absolutely optimal. But in terms of the comparisons between him and LeBron, the key one at this point that is lacking in favor of Giannis is when the floor was spread out for LeBron, what made him so lethal was uh, he could always just uh, haul out 
you know, jack one up from three-point land and be a credible threat. I mean, never going to be a guy who leads the league in three-point shots, but he got to be certainly well above average at that. So for Giannis, it's a thing where he's not in the desperate need of refining his offensive game the way, say, that a Ben Simmons is. But the gap between him and being the consensus best player in the league all lies in that skill set, I think, in developing that and in becoming somebody who can kill you from every area on the floor the way that LeBron can when he's healthy. Right, and that was the issue with LeBron in his first couple of seasons in Cleveland. He eventually learned how to get that three-point shot or that post-game to work for him in the long run. And I think, again, this, is, this isn't super shocking to me because we have to remember Giannis is still a very young player. And Milwaukee has taken a huge step up out in a year one. Yep. It wasn't that Milwaukee couldn't make the finals. It was just more progressions of this nature tend to be quick, but also if you do, if you run into a team that has been a little bit playoff tested and does have a significantly superior talent like Kawhi, it, it definitely makes a big difference overall. Absolutely. Kawhi, very, very much so somebody who is uh, playoff tested, uh, MVP of the finals in 2014 when he was still with San Antonio, so he's got a championship from then, a previous finals appearance in 2013. This is something that you and I had talked about, uh, that it is a extreme, extreme rarity in today's NBA, is that uh, Kawhi Leonard came out of college uh, relatively lightly touted, what didn't wasn't thought to have uh, a superstar upside, much less megastar. Giannis, sure, there was thought that that was his ceiling, but uh, was he going to reach it? I mean, raw guys are a dime a dozen coming out. He just happened to be the one who was able to work hard enough to be able to refine that, get the help that he needed in Milwaukee to develop that even more. But uh, again, neither of these guys came in very highly touted in the league. In a, in a way, uh, not much unlike uh, Curry and Thompson at the very least, the Splash Brothers from Golden State, neither of them was thought to be uh, superstars coming in. I mean, Curry was at least a, a top 10 guy in the draft and in, in the later part of the top 10. But as we've seen, that doesn't necessarily mean that anybody thinks that you're going to be a megastar or anything. Durant is really the one guy in this series who came in who was expected to be what he has become. Uh, but it would have been that way either way if it was Toronto or Milwaukee uh, in that sense. That Kawhi has just, uh, again, there are things that were brought out of himself in the pros that were never even forecast by most people when he was coming into the NBA in 2011. Right, and I think the major thing with him is that he had all the measurables. He had all the talent. This wasn't like he was, uh, uh, to use the Giannis comparison, we all knew Giannis was going to be good, but we really got a full eye test. Like, remember like he had San Diego State he played well he, you know they had a really significant NCAA tournament run so it wasn't completely not thought out but at the time it was believed that he was an inconsistent shooter at best you're probably looking at a guy probably could be a rotational player could be your team's best defender but was getting that getting that assistance in San Antonio with Chip Angle and their shooting instructor was clearly massively important in the creation of his career and then the creation of being a guy who well, exactly. And if you go back to 2017, a little bit of unfinished business for him versus, yes, the Warriors, when uh, people tend to forget. Game one of the Western Conference Finals, uh, they got off to a big lead, the Spurs did, uh, over the Hamptons 5 version of the Warriors, the first one of them to come through the playoffs. Who knows what would have happened? Zaza Pachulia accidentally on purpose takes out his leg, which, uh, again, becomes the beginning of the end for him in San Antonio because uh, separate leg issues, but the next year he was never quite right, uh, and then you know forcing the trade out of there subsequently. 
But uh, that's an interesting subplot of this series is that it's only really this season and then especially in the playoffs because, again, he missed some time in the regular season. The playoffs have been an emphatic stamp of return for where he was two years ago when uh, it really became, again, that... Uh, that, that, that injury to his leg that took him out of the rest of the Western Finals was the beginning of the end for him in San Antonio. After two years, he is back, and he is in the Finals. Right, and it, it's, been a, it's been impressive to see him play this well. He hasn't played this well in a long time, Rick, and I still think overall that he can still make waves in this league and because I think a lot of people, after seeing what had happened to him in the last couple of seasons, they kind of not ran him off entirely, but they, we all did kind of wonder how good was he going to be moving forward. Absolutely, yeah. He has reestablished himself all the way around. So in terms of the nuts and bolts for each team, it, it probably doesn't get any more to the point uh, than the question I'm going to ask you about either team. I'm going to start with Toronto looking at Golden State. So these are both teams that, again, we know about everything that they can do offensively. Defensively, again, very much strong. For what it's worth, again, Golden State with a defensive rating only 11th in the regular season, but, uh, again, that had to do... Uh, partially with, with time off, with having to change things a little bit to uh, accommodate uh, Cousins when he was able to come in and play. So the regular season a little more experimental than the last couple of ones for Golden State. It might have accounted for that. By the way, Cousins ironically thought that perhaps be ready to come back in this series before uh, Durant. So that's a thing that makes them a little bit more unscoutable is trying to figure out what version of Golden State you're going to get. But from Toronto's point of view, uh, one of the things that I had read was uh, an indication that uh, when Toronto is able to play uh, with a bigger lineup on the floor, i.e. when Golden State doesn't force them to go small, that to make the most of the minutes you have with Gasol out there, the most of the minutes that you've got with Ibaka and when you're playing bigger, because you have to gain an edge in those minutes to be able to withstand what happens when Golden State goes smaller. But in terms of big picture Defending Golden State, if you're Toronto, if you're Nick Nurse, what are the principles you're looking at? I mean, I think it's very simple. Is that it's going to be a very tough task this time around, but considering Nick Nurse has had a pretty lengthy coaching career in the G League and then overseas in the British Basketball League, he definitely has the tools to maybe figure this out. So, I mean, the three keys, I think, automatically right off the bat is one, you have to keep Curry in check. One of the issues that we've discussed this in pre previous uh, editions is that if you Try the second one, Curry, who will beat you by himself. 
and that's the thing here too in terms of looking at it and we're, we're assuming that uh, if Durant makes it back that it would be later in the series here because the way this keeps getting dribbled out of he's not ready quite yet not quite yet not quite yet it's been a couple weeks since it happened so you have to assume if he comes back in the series it's late if at all and uh, that would only be by the way I'm guessing if it's 2-2 or, or at that point, you know, like, like where Golden State's in a real dogfight at the end and it's worth risking uh, what might happen. So figure for right now, we're looking at a, a team where, again, like you said, Curry 1, Thompson 1A. Assume that we're looking at that as far as, and, and again, also possibly Cousins, but for Golden State, they're going to have as much work to do incorporating Cousins into this as Toronto's going to have figuring out how to stop that combination. So it's a thing where if you're Toronto, this is one of these very, very fascinating conundrums in terms of how you attack this. You're already going to have on the other side of the ball, you figure they're going to put uh, Draymond Green on uh, Kawhi and possibly even somebody else. So Golden State's got a much easier task figuring out what they're going to do. So if you're Kawhi and you're going to be getting bodied up like that on the other end, you're almost sort of doubling down on we need to beat Golden State in a low-scoring game if you put him on Curry because he's going to have the running around and keeping up to, to do with him on there. If he's got to guard Curry, he can help suppress Golden State's offense, yes, but that's probably going to further compromise him on the other end of the floor. So that's where it gets to be very tough. I've spoken of this the last couple of years. My sympathy with at the time with the Cavs coaches who had to make these choices on what are you going to do, you know, pick your poison. That's one of these things where, I mean, if you're Nick Nurse, you really got to think about that. Like, if you put him on Curry, you have a much better chance of suppressing Golden State's output. But you also may be fatally suppressing your own output if Kawhi's not able to give you as much at the other end of the floor. Right, and I, I, it's, again, it's the true definition of pick your poison at that point because Golden State has proven so far in at least the Portland series and in the Houston series that they can just turn it on and become the unstoppable offensive force that they can become. But, again, outside of the Yeah, I think so. I think it probably, it's definitely tougher than what they've had coming their way the last two years because Toronto does have more backing. I mean, they're they're a top-heavy team with Kawhi, but not to the extent that the last two Cavs teams were uh, coming into the uh, finals, especially uh, the, the way that they came in last year without uh, Kyrie Irving. So, yes, in particular, uh, Golden State's facing a tougher task in that sense. So the one thing I'd already kind of alluded to here, uh, flipping to the other side of the ball, is that there's a good chance that Draymond Green and or somebody else uh, is going to be on Kawhi. Uh, my guess is it would be Draymond primarily and then probably getting a lot of switches over on as well. But uh, if you're Steve Kerr, you you know, is that necessarily something you go with? And uh, whether it is or it's not, what would be some of the other things you'd be thinking about in terms of trying to shut down Toronto? I mean, I think it's very, I mean, for, uh, for Steve Kerr, I think it's very simple. It's the, the team lifeblood at this point pretty much is a very good Kawhi. If, if you don't get, if you force Kawhi the shots he doesn't take or force him into double teams, Toronto is a very good deep team and you have good shooters, but let's be honest, we discussed this last season when Cleveland beat Toronto in the second round. The issue that there is that there has been wildly erratic during the playoffs. Mm-hmm. They've had great games. Lowry and then you have some solid games from Green, but they've also been very much luxy at times. See, Occam has had his multi where if you remember too, during I believe it was their series against Philadelphia, 
Yeah, that is very critical as well. No question about that. And uh, in terms of... Oh, and we, Rick, we should also mention too, yeah. that uh, Andre Iguodala will probably be a guy that will deal with some of Kawhi at some point during the finals. He, uh, I think, to my knowledge, he's been cleared for game one. So. Yes, yes. And that's, uh, again, a lot of aches and pains on both sides at this point in time here. Again, it's been enough to keep out Cousins, and it's been enough to keep out Durant. Uh, but again, Cousins is expected to be back before Durant would be, uh, at least potentially, at this point here. So a lot of other guys you figure banged up, but still in there going. And uh, for the expectation, I think that everybody has that if Durant's able to make it back, uh, Golden State will definitely win this thing. Golden State looks like the likely, likely favorite, uh, even without him at this point, just based on how Golden State has played and their successful reversion to the principles that they showed in 2015 and 2016, which again, overshadowed by, let nobody forget the fact that the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. I am mandated to get that in there. But uh, before that, yes, they did win 73 games without Durant. So in terms of what they can do, the thought that a very, very good Toronto team is still a very sharp underdog, even to a Durantless Warriors team, stems from that and what Golden State has showed since. But that's something where, in looking at this, the, the thought that a lot of people have that this potentially might even be at another short series like we've seen the last two years. My sense for that is that if Toronto really stumbles in either of the first two games, that that could be the case. Because you alluded to that, both against uh, Philadelphia and against Milwaukee, especially against Milwaukee going down 0-2 the way that they did. There was a sense that uh, Toronto just really couldn't get it figured out. Listen, if they play a game that ugly, I don't think there's any coming back in this series. They've got to win the close games. They've got to make sure that they don't suffer a really demoralizing loss like that because it's one thing to make adjustments against Milwaukee and Philadelphia. It's another thing to do it against Golden State. So uh, is your sense that they are going to be in mortal danger if, if they lay a big egg in either of the first two games at home? I don't think mortal danger is the right word. Okay. I think the question will be is not with the players, I think, fans. Fan base says even though they finally broke it through, a big loss or a loss early at home will probably rattle them a little bit. Even if you have Kawhi on that team, and even if you're having more battle tests than Kyle Lowry and Dave Green to help hold that team up a bit, I think the sense of it, the fact that I think for Toronto is that not necessarily that the team is going to win the series. They're almost expected to win the series because they got the one guy that Golden State has had issues with every time they've met so far in the playoffs. And I think the question for them is, is that if the excitement, it, as, you, as we've discussed this too, Rick, the difference from being a team that has just made the finals for the first time and a team that's made the finals for a third or second or fourth time right. is a completely different narrative. It, it's a different shade of the coin. And I can see a scenario where if Toronto just gets waxed in game one, they might not recover. That's my sense as well. And by the way, like you said, in terms of finals history, uh, you go back and, and in terms of playoffs as well, you've got uh, Leonard who back in 2013, let us not forget Spurs and Warriors then, that the Spurs had been a roadblock for the Warriors. Uh, and then again, prior to Steve Kerr getting there, and, and again, as, as much as I, as a Cavs fan, hate to give credit to anybody Warriors, again, helping to revolutionize the modern game. Now again, he, he, he had the perfect pieces to make it fit, but he recognized he had the perfect pieces to make it fit and doubled down on that system. But prior to that, San Antonio had been a big roadblock. They'd been the dominant power in the West, the two-time conference champions 
for this. And again, like we said, Kawhi Leonard was not nearly the Kawhi Leonard that he is now at that point in time. But as you said, the history between them actually goes back that far. I, I'm, I'm not holding my breath that the TV guys are going to be talking about this too much during the finals, but you, you could go all the way back to 2013 at the very least if you're looking about the hi history of him and the Warriors. Right, and I, I, it's going to be the overarching narrative that most people, I think, would peddle it. It's Kawhi versus Golden State, but it's also the reverse of that. The Warriors, even though they have defeated Kawhi before, he's one of those guys that you much so and uh, you mentioned about Toronto finally breaking through I'm wondering if there was a small asterisk on the Eastern Conference trophy uh, in that regard there I hope the good people of Toronto had the good grace to send a fruit basket to LeBron for going to the Western Conference and clearing the way for them Ben Chu but uh, yes in that sense they did break through in terms of what was left after LeBron uh, departed well what's, what's my favorite uh, analogy I like use like it, it doesn't matter if you That's right, that's right, and uh, Canada being a big hockey country, uh, you know, the tough guys who play hockey understand the phrase, they don't ask how, they ask how many, so uh, I guess it sort of applies here in terms of making it to the finals, but uh, in terms of uh, the outcome of this thing, I have gotten it right, I can't remember, I think I was wrong in 2014 because I believe that I had picked Miami to win it, I think I picked them the year before, I've been on quite a run, I've gotten it right the last four years, uh, against what I hoped, uh, I picked Golden State in 2015, 2017, 2018. I picked it right in 2016, as I believe you did as well. So we're both on a roll. We've at minimum gotten the last four years right. Uh, it, it hasn't always been the hardest thing to do in that regard, although we, we deserve a lot of credit for 2016 because there was a lot of people lined up to say that the 73-9 and Warriors were going to finish the job. And you and I had a sense that that just wasn't the case. And looking at this here, again, uh, the split between head and heart is as strong for me as ever because uh, pretty much give me whoever's playing Golden State and I'll want to be on them as I am for Toronto. I will be an honorary Canadian for the uh, remainder of the playoffs here. But in my head, I'm just seeing too many things against them. I'm going to say Warriors in five and uh, partially because, again, these things become a narrative. For as much as the media wants to see Curry break through and get a finals MVP, narratives play as big a part in this as anything. And uh, again, if they win it in five, I think he'll obviously be a huge part of it. I'll say Warriors in five, Curry is MVP. What are your thoughts? I mean, this, uh, I will say this, Rick. It's, we've been doing one of these, these predictions for what six years now, and I think almost every other year, this one, the, the prediction was the easy one. Like, mm -hmm. Doing all the read-up and the discussion is more getting than this one. But this one, I think, is very hard. Okay. I mean, I've read through a bunch of blogs. I've read through a bunch of predictions. And I have to use this analogy to date, to date this back. I think we, let's go back to Oakland. And I remember the uh, Super Bowl that year. It was Tampa Bay versus Oakland. Yeah. And on the most, for most of the people, it was heavy, 90, 90 to 95%. It was heavy. And as we all know, that series, Tampa Bay ended up winning. Relatively yeah. easily. Yeah. Now, I, I think overall, the the one question I think we all have to point essentially this series is is home court, and I think Toronto having it is definitely going to benefit them in the long 
Right. But I, I'm always the contrarian, Rick. You know this. And I think this is the year that we've seen some cracks in the armor for Golden State. We've also saw them possibly playing a series against Portland where they kind of just pedal through without very much resistance. I'm going to go with Toronto this year. I'm going to go with Toronto in six because I cannot see a scenario if they don't win it that it wouldn't be in Toronto. Yeah, well, and that's what's funny, too, is that I sort of reverse-engineered my pick in 2016 where I thought it would be the Cavs, but I picked them in six. I'm like, "Eh, if it goes seven, they're screwed. They're not going to win it in Golden State. I'm picking them in six. So it's funny to see three years later you're using the same methodology on this. Uh, There would not be, I think, probably any suspense in that narrative on who the MVP is, right? There's there's no way it's Fred Van Vliet, Marcus Saul, or anybody other than Kawhi under your scenario, yes? Uh, I'm, I'm not fully sold on that. I could see a scenario if Lowry pops against it for like one big game or something, and something that turns the tide, or if Kawhi gets injured. Okay. Like and this one, it's Kawhi and Kyle Lowry. That's it for finals MVP. There's no other option. Oh, yeah. Like Pete Pascal, Siakam, like, takes over, gets like the money of You know, the Siakam thing here, just from a basketball nerd point of view, I'm intrigued by what you just said because you look at this, and again, there aren't too many times in NBA history where there would be a precedent for such a thing. But he's had a breakout year. People are talking about him as being possibly on the next wave of stars in the league. If he wins, wouldn't that be awfully similar to what Kawhi did in 2014 with the Spurs, where he was able to use that as a well, jumping-off point? Remember too, and right, remember, too, Rick, and speaking of that, remember in 2015 before Ray Allen shot, Danny Green was probably going to be the MVP yeah. of that series. That's true. So it's, not, it's not unheard of. I just think in this scenario it's unlikely. But then it, it does, from, because one question that a lot of people have been talking about that people have been discussing on the blog sphere and the Twitter sphere is, Who's going to match up with Draymond Green overall? And I think Siakam can probably handle him one-on-one. I'm not sure in terms of defensively how good Siakam's going to be if Green is all over the floor. Mm-hmm. But he definitely has the height and the body to make it the thing. And I, and I, I always make, especially with this series, it's going to be very obvious if Toronto is going to win. You'll, you'll see it right off the bat that they're going to be able to win the series. I don't see a scenario where they're going to choke away like a 3-1 lead. But the big, I, I think mostly we know what we expect from Kawhi and Lowry. It's going to come down to the to three guys essentially for Toronto. It's going to be Gasol, Siakam, and then a pick of who you think could impact the series from Fred Van Vliet to, uh, to, uh, to uh, excuse me, my brain, my brain just froze, but I <laughs> Fred Van Vliet and the brain was like, oh, that's it. I mean, you, you, Your brain couldn't believe you, you said that, yeah, but I mean, no, yeah, I, I hear Fred you. Van Vliet, well, the whole room went dark, but uh, I mean, guys like Fred VanVleet—what is shocking to you? Could see some run from some of the lesser-known bench guys on the team. Remember, Patrick McCaw was a Golden State Warrior with the Green on Toronto's roster and could yep. see some action. Yep. And then let's not forget—they still have some other guys like Eli, the Chiwi, the MVP, Kristen Share, Jeremy Lin's on the roster. So there could be a scenario where we could see an unsung guy make an impact in the finals, and I think. Just judging from just the narrative how this Toronto team has come to be, they, it, it, it seems like if they are to win it, this is the year for them to win it. Because they 
have a very unstoppable team and they're facing a Golden State team. Alibi played exceptionally well against Portland, but a little banged up and had to play, you would arguably a lesser talented opponent at that point. Well, and a name you mentioned and before, too. Oh, yeah, and uh, Danny Green, a guy that you mentioned before, uh, Green, a good shooter, a big-time player, and uh, so he has the big game uh, and finals experience uh, having come over with Kawhi in the trade last year. So, yeah, it's very possible. And it's very important that he was included in that deal because I think it, that, that was much needed for Kawhi to have a guy he could rely on to score from the, uh, period, from the three-point line. And during the season, even though Green's tapered off a bit in the Eastern Conference Finals, he was very reliable in making shots. And that was one of the issues that Toronto had forever was just, you know, DeRose is a great player, great an all-star caliber candidate, possibly he continues well in San Antonio, possibly a Hall of Famer at some point. Right. The question going to be is that his game isn't well suited for how Toronto needs to run their offense. True. With the pieces they had. And he just wasn't the right fit. And it's clear you can tell him that with Kawhi, they look well, last question I got for you, uh, since you think it's uh, a decent possibility that Toronto could actually win this series, gun to your head, who's the one guy who you think if a, a monster performance from him can really make the difference? And I would guess that if Toronto wins this series, it's the scenario we've talked about where Siakam just uh, goes beast mode, kind of ascends to the next level, and becomes somebody that Golden State has to deal with such that uh, they can relax on Kawhi a little bit. What would your sense be? I would think that's the case, and this is a this is an analysis that I've noted too. That I think the most important person, the most important player for Toronto in this series is probably going not going to be Kawhi, and it's not going to be Kyle Lowry. It's going to be Marcus Gasol mm-hmm. because it's been during the regular season. It's been kind of proven that Golden State has issues with uh, interior scorers, since due to their lack of depth, and on top of the fact that Gasol, the one thing that Gasol brought during his time with the Grand Grand Grizzlies to his team was his ability to make exceptional passes. And I think what's going to get lost in a lot of the uh, the Game 6 victory in Colomai's growth is that Gasol made a lot of big plays at the end of that game. Right. And he hit a three and it gave them a four-point advantage with about two minutes to play. Uh-huh. If Gasol plays well or plays up to his level and on the floor enough, because that's the big caveat, I think. If he's not on the floor, yeah, well, you can't really do anything about that. Right. But if he plays well and forces Golden State play him on the perimeter, that opens up the game for everybody else. For. So I think Assault might be the most important player on the floor for Toronto. Interesting, yeah. And it's the very things you're talking about as far as making Golden State account for something. That's why I wanted to see them have to deal with Denver in the playoffs. Uh, again, I'm not saying Denver would have beaten them, but at least it would have been something we haven't seen before as far as them having to account for that kind of presence at the five uh, Gasol is certainly a right. poor man's version of that. Doesn't have a uh, since I mean he's not a bad passer, but I mean no center in the league is nearly the passer that the Joker is. Uh, so yeah, that was right. something we didn't get to see there. But yes, we'll see if that trade deadline acquisition can pay off for Toronto, and uh, if it can do so uh, in a way that uh, brings a championship there, the first one for the city of Toronto in any of the big four sports since 1993, Joe Carter. Uh, it's not been uh, won since uh, that point in time. Now, granted, it's just the uh, the Blue Jays, the Raptors, and the Leafs who have only uh, become relevant in the last 20 year, uh, twenty minutes or so, I should say. But uh, so th- they haven't had much to, uh, to be able to pick from as far as viable opportunities. But uh, the Raptors knocking on the door. We'll see if they can get it done here this time around. And uh, as per always, 
Uh, a real pleasure breaking it down with you, Ben Chu. Nobody does it better. Thankful to get you back in to break down the 2019 NBA Finals. Uh, thanks, Rick. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, everybody, for checking out FDH Lounge Mini Episode Number 1119. As we bring the show to a close, we would like to extend our deepest gratitude to NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, All Clear Channel affiliates, TNT, TBS, USA, UPN, Deadspin.com, YouTube.com, YTMND.com, MySpace.com, various blogs, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, IamBoard.com, Billboard.com, Google.com, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN News, ESPN Classic, NBA TV, NFL Network, Sports Time Ohio, Athlon Magazine, Comedy Central, Cartoon Network, The Boomerang Channel, QVC, BET, The Spice Channel, Steno Notebooks, Manwich, Papermate Office Supplies, Waitresses, Strippers, Bartenders, Garbage Men, Janitors, Microwave Popcorn, The Writers of The Office, Scrubs, Entourage, My Name is Earl, Oz, Metalocalypse and the Boondocks, Aquafina, and The Periodic Table of Elements.